0: Hello and welcome to the Entertaining Abstracts Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got a lot of cool stuff to talk to you guys about on the show today. First and foremost, Happy New Year to everyone. We appreciate all of your support and we look forward to providing you with some excellent content in the upcoming year. First article for the day is, Man Spends About $23,000 on Realistic Costume to Fulfill His Dream of Becoming a Wolf. And Michelle Piscina wrote this article. A man reportedly contacted Zeppit, a Japanese special modeling company, to create an ultra-realistic wolf suit spending about 3 million yen, which is approximately 22,700, to be transformed into the gray-furred canine. Because of my love for animals since childhood and some realistic animal suits appearing on TV, I dreamed of being one someday, the man told Zepit. It took the company 50 days to complete the costume. Zeppet, which usually creates figures and costume for films and TV commercials, studied images of real wolves to incorporate every fine detail into their client's suit. We created a wolf suit from a personal order modeled on Timberwolf. The complete suit turned out as visually impactful as reality, the company wrote. Images of the client in the final product appear lifelike. The man praised the Japanese company for their inventiveness, attentiveness, craftsmanship, and service. At the final fitting, I was amazed at my transformed self in the mirror, he said. It was a moment when my dream came true. My order to look like a real wolf walking on hind legs was difficult, to say the least, but the complete suit looked exactly like what I imagined. Zeppet is the same company that was commissioned to create a realistic dog costume for another man who spent about $16,000 to realize his dream of becoming a dog. Wow, that's some interesting stuff right there. Next article, Blood Falls Gushes Red Water from Antarctica's Ice. It took scientists 106 years to figure out what causes the color and Paola Rosa Aquino wrote this one. Blood Falls is a waterfall of vibrant red water that oozes out of Antarctica's Taylor Glacier. Its unique color is due to iron salts seeping out of the ice that turn red when exposed to oxygen. The falls are home to microbes that can survive extreme conditions with no light or oxygen. A large glacier in Antarctica produces bright red rivers that ooze out of the ice, aptly named Blood Falls. Why the reddish water pours out of Antarctica's Taylor Glacier and into Lake Bonney puzzled scientists for decades. The phenomenon was first discovered by geologist Griffith Taylor in 1911. At the time, he thought the red algae living in the water was responsible for the water's striking red hue. More than a century later, scientists found what causes the bloody river iron salts seeping out of the ice that turn red when they make contact with the air. In a 2017 study, scientists found that Taylor Glacier formed roughly two million years ago, trapping a saltwater lake under it. Millions of years later, the ancient lake has reached the edge of the glacier, squeezing out saltwater. In a 2015 study, researchers found a network of rivers flowing through cracks in the glacier using ice-penetrating radar. That means liquid water can exist inside the extreme cold glacier. While it sounds counterintuitive, water releases heat as it freezes, and that heat warms the surrounding colder ice. Aaron Pettit, a glaciologist at the University of Alaska Fairbanks and co-author of the 2017 study said in a press release, the heat and the lower freezing temperatures of salty water make liquid movement possible. Taylor Glacier is now the coldest known glacier to have persistently flowing water. In a 2009 study, researchers discovered that the underwater lake is home to unique inhabitants, a community of microbes that can survive extreme conditions with no light or oxygen. Instead, they use iron and sulfate to survive. Researchers believe the lake trapped beneath the glacier millions of years ago was full of microbes. Among the big questions here are how does an ecosystem function below glaciers? How are they able to persist below hundreds of meters of ice and live in permanently cold and dark conditions for extended periods of time? In the case of blood falls over a million years, Jill McCucky, a microbiologist and the study's lead author, said in a press release, scientists believe studying these microbes will be a boon for astrobiology. They can shed light on how life might survive in other worlds with similar bodies of frozen water, like Earth's neighbor Mars. Very interesting stuff, indeed. Next article, a 120 million year old dinosaur fossil with the bones of its final snack still inside of it reveals it enjoyed eating our ancestors. And Kelsey Neubauer wrote this article, the key to a small forming dinosaur species survival was not being fussy about what it ate. The examination of a rare fossil revealed paleontologist Hans Larsen, a professor at McGill University, was the first to notice a small mammal foot lodged in between the bones of a fossilized microraptor, a carnivorous dino with birdish wings. The discovery shows the dino ate a long list of animals including mammals, fish, birds, and lizards. These finds are the only solid evidence we have about the food consumption of these long-extinct animals, and they are exceptionally rare, Larson said in the release. The revelation that the animal was an opportunistic eater puts a new perspective on how ancient ecosystems may have worked. Only 20 other fossils have been found with the fossilized bones of their meals inside, according to McGill. And this is the first time a fossil has been shown that any dinosaurs ate mammals. Microraptor fossils were first discovered in the 2000s in Liaoning, China, located in the northeast part of the country along the Yellow Sea. Scientists have speculated that the species likely died out because it had four wings and the two additional wings created drag when it moved. Its ability to make a snack out of all kinds of animals may not have been enough to make up for too many wings. Wow, right? Next article. Relocated nuisance bear travels 1000 miles across four states to return to park and Andrew Miller wrote this one. A black bear that was relocated by a national park after being accustomed to eating food from visitors traveled over 1000 miles for 6 months to make its way back to the park. I guess that food was a was an extreme motivator, right? The bear, known as Bear 609, started off at Great Smoky Mountains National Park in Tennessee, but had to be relocated due to food conditioning behavior, which means she had become accustomed to eating garbage and food given to her by campers. After the park tried unsuccessful measures to prevent the bear from being so comfortable with people, they were forced to move Bear 609 about 45 or 50 miles away to the Cherokee National Forest, where she was fitted with a GPS tracker and released. Over the next six months, digital tracking data showed Bear 609 traveling more than 1,000 miles through Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina, before eventually returning to the very same campsite in Tennessee where she was originally captured. She never slowed down. Bill Stiver, a wildlife biologist who was tracking the bear, said, She just kept on going. This was definitely one of the most bizarre movements I've seen so far. After returning to the campsite, Bear 609 went to Georgia and was covered by a local TV station while digging through a dumpster, and Stivers said she was hit by a car in Georgia, but it didn't kill her. It is now believed that Bear 609 is currently dead back in Tennessee's Cherokee National Forest, about 20 miles from where she was dropped off before her long journey. Stivers said about two-thirds of relocated bears are dead within four or five months, which makes it important to tell people the importance of not eating wildlife. When bears' behavior escalates to a certain level, there are not many options left. Either move them or euthanize them, and for years we have moved them, Stiver said. So that makes it essential people to not feed the wildlife. It is so important not to do that. Next article. It's a myth that ancient Egyptians pulled mummy brains out by the nose. They likely scrambled them instead, says an expert who tried it and Marianne Gnott wrote this article. Contrary to what you learned in school, ancient Egyptian embalmers likely did not pull out chunks of brains using hooks when they were preparing a dead body for the afterlife. Experiments suggest they likely used a more effective method, albeit one that's more unpleasant, said Stephen Buckley, an expert studying mummification. Buckley, an archaeologist and analytical chemist at the University of York, told Insider he did experiments on sheep to test ways in which the brain could be removed. The work formed part of a 2008 History Channel documentary, Mummy Forensics, taking inspiration from a 1969 academic paper by British Egyptologist, Philip Leek. He found that digging out the brain in chunks was not very easy. Hooking it out in pieces was not particularly efficient or successful, he told the insider in an email. It could be slowly removed as small parts of the brain adhere to the metal hook through repeated insertions and removals, he said. But even better, liquefying the brain makes the removal of it fairly straightforward. If you whisk the brain with a hook for about 20 minutes, the brain liquidizes and you can just pour it out, Buckley said in a later interview. It's not very nice, but it's a much more effective way of removing the brain. There are some times when the brains were left in, Buckley said. Particularly with the earlier, still quite well-preserved royal mummies, they actually left the brain in place. So you didn't have to remove them, he said. Egyptians at that time would not have known about microbes, but they definitely understood that moving organs had a profound effect, slowing the body's decay. If they could afford it, Egyptians would always have their guts, lungs, and other internal organs removed and treated to preserve them. In some cases, they were put in jars, and others, they were placed back in the body. The brain, however, could be left in the body to mummify inside of the skull during the embalming process. For instance, Pharaoh Tutmos I, Queen Tai, the main wife of Amenhotep III, and Pharaoh Amenhotep I were all found with brain tissue in place. That really is fascinating, isn't it? Next article, monumental 5,000-year-old cemetery unearthed below stone pillars near Lake in Kenya. And Aspen Plutope wrote this article. Along the shoreline of a lake in northern Kenya, a collection of stone pillars stand in a rough circle, marking the location of a monumental ancient cemetery, according to a new study. Shallow excavations of the Jargigol pillar site in the 1980s and 90s concluded that the area was used as a secondary burial site, a place where the bones and fragmentary remains of the deceased were buried long after death. Digging deeper, archaeologists found evidence that challenged this idea, according to a study published in the Journal of Antiquity. Archaeologists re-excavated the megalithic pillar site at Lake Turkana, the study said. Their excavation uncovered a large cavity with the remains of nine bodies, buried about 5,000 years ago. These bodies were buried with accessories shortly after their deaths. In one burial, researchers found over 100 beads made of amazonite, a blue-green gemstone, around the neck and the chest of the deceased, the study said. The beads may have formed a necklace. Photos offer one possible reconstruction of the jewelry, Another burial contains about 300 small beads made of ostrich eggshells. These beads appear to come from a bracelet that still encircled the deceased's wrist, the study said. The bodies were buried at the deepest portions of the cemetery cavity, researchers confirmed. Atop the burials were shards of deliberately broken pots, ceramic figures, charcoal, and fragmentary remains, primarily teeth and hand bones. Photos showed the animals and phallic-shaped ceramics. Archaeologists concluded that the cemetery was a pre-planned site used for burying people soon after they died, the study said. The mobile herding groups that lived near Turkiana 5,000 years ago must have been within a few days' walk from a pillar site to enable these burials, researchers said. Alternatively, the herders found funerary rituals important enough for people to cease other activities and travel whenever a death occurred. In this way, the Lake Turkana Cemetery may have helped unite dispersed and potentially diverse groups of people, archaeologists said. Lake Turkana is about 345 miles northwest of Nairobi. Next article. Sausage jogs could have been made to fight bears in the Colosseum of ancient Rome, archaeologists said. And Alia Shoaib wrote this article of sausage dogs might have been made to fight larger animals like bears or perform acrobatics at the Colosseum in ancient Rome. Archaeologists said they found the remains of small dogs similar to wiener dogs for the first time while excavating the drains of the iconic 2000 year old amphitheater. We found many bones from dogs which were similar to the modern sausage dog. They were less than 30 centimeters 11.6 inches in height. We think they may have been used to perform acrobatic tricks just as you see in a circus today. Or it may be that they were used as part of staged hunts or even pitched against bears and animals like that. We don't know for sure. Venetio was a type of entertainment in ancient Rome involving various animals being pitted against each other in fights or being trained to perform tricks. The dogs would have been ancestors of sausage dogs rather than true dachshunds. The modern dachshund breed emerged in 18th century Germany and was developed to go down holes and hunt badgers. Dasch means badger in German. They were bred to be an independent hunter of dangerous prey. They could be brave to the point of rashness, according to the American Kennel Club. The Colosseum archaeologists also found the bones of large dogs, leopards, lions, bears, and ostriches in the ancient drains. The discoveries were made during a year-long study during which archaeologists trawled through 70 meters of drains and sewers underneath the Colosseum, which could host up to 50,000 spectators. Along with the animal remains, they also found the remnants of snacks that spectators ate, including fruits, nuts, and olives. They also discovered more than 50 bronze coins from the late Roman period and a silver coin to commemorate the rule of the emperor Marcus Aurelius from around 170 to 171 AD. This man was popularized by the movie Gladiator. And one final article for the day... Ancient Roman concrete was incredibly strong. Scientists may have just figured out why. And Marianne Gnot wrote this article. It is one of the greatest mysteries of archaeology. How did the Romans create concrete so strong that their buildings are still standing some 2,000 years later? The question has long puzzled scientists. Not only because the concrete has incredible strength, but also because it seems to be able to heal itself. Meaning, cracks inexplicably disappear over time. The Pantheon in Rome is a perfect example of this. The structure built around AD 126 has been in constant use since then, but its intricate dome looks brand new even today. So what made this material so special? A group of scientists from MIT and Harvard who published their results in the peer-reviewed journal Science Advances on January 6 may have cracked it. Although these flecks are seen in pretty much every Roman structure, they have usually been dismissed as imperfections in the building material. Any concrete is made up of a few basic elements, a liquid binding agent called mortar, and aggregates, typically loose gravel, sand, or small rocks. Roman mortar was made using lime, a chemical created by heating limestone. The general belief was that the lime was first mixed with water before adding in the aggregates the flecks were seen as a sign that the mortar was not well-mixed by the builders. But Admir Masik, an author of the research and an MIT professor of civil and environmental engineering, said he was never really convinced. If the Romans put so much effort into making an outstanding construction material, following all of the detailed recipes that had been optimized over the course of many centuries, why would they put so little effort into ensuring the production of a well-mixed final product? He said in a press release. After studying the flecks more closely, Masek and the team of scientists concluded that they were likely to have been put there on purpose. This, they found, was crucial to the self-healing property of the concrete. Lime clasts, the white flecks, are quite brittle, and that's a good thing. As cracks appear in the concrete, the clasts crumble, releasing calcium that can travel through the fracture. When water seeps into the cracks, the calcium seen above in red reacts with the water, creating new crystals. These crystals automatically fill the crack and fix the structure. The scientists believe this could only happen if the lime was added to the concrete in its heated, powdered form. Right after it's heated in the kiln, lime is very reactive and can be dangerous. It is extremely dehydrated at this point, so as soon as this chemical comes into contact with water it incorporates it into its chemical structure to make a more stable molecule. That reaction releases a lot of energy, which releases intense heat. When people make concrete, they usually add water to the powdered lime first, let it cool down, and then add the aggregates. By mixing the lime with the aggregates, then adding water, the Romans created a controlled explosion, raising the heat in the mix just enough to change the concrete's chemical composition, which led to the incorporation of the lime class. The scientists put their theory to the test. They made up concrete blocks, one using the powdered lime and one using a more modern version of the concrete that they did not. Then they deliberately smashed the blocks to create cracks. They found that the Roman formulation was repaired within a couple of weeks under a drizzle of water. The modern formulation did not. Wow, that is really interesting indeed. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. We will put all of the articles into the show notes. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot us an email. I have put that into the show notes as well. Please join us again next time when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild articles. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye!